Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can expand your sustainable and ESG opportunities with insights from leaders in the field. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these weekly conversations about developments in this fast-growing industry. Climate change. It's no longer a hypothetical risk. It's already transforming the global economy, reshaping markets, and altering the investment landscape. For institutional investors, that means how to understand climate change risk repricing. For fixed income investors, available data is estimated rather than reported, bringing another set of challenges. These are some of the critical issues discussed in a megatrends report just published by PGIM. It's called Weathering Climate Change, Opportunities and Risks in an Altered Investment Landscape. Today, my guest on the Sustainable Finance Podcast is Sheriar Antia, Vice President and Head of Thematic Research at PGM, the $1.5 trillion asset management firm of Prudential Financial. Sheriar is going to walk us through what's in this megatrends report. Hello, Sheriar, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Hello, Paul, and thank you very much for having me on your program today. It- really is a pleasure to speak with you and your audience today. Great. Well, let's jump right in, Sherryar. My first question is, how is climate risk repricing taking shape in the investment markets? And what does that mean for institutional investor portfolios? So, you know, Paul, we've, we've, we've all read a lot about climate change and, and ESG. And, uh, you know, let me first speak a bit about how, how our research may be a little bit different from, from, from what you've, you've read already. Uh, climate change is, is clearly impacting our planet. It's impacting human lives. It's impacting our economy. Much of what's written about climate change for investors uh, appeals to the moral imperative of, of climate change, uh, you know, that investors need to act because it's the right thing to do. We've deliberately chosen to take a different perspective with, with, our, with, our, with our current, current research. Uh, we, we recognize that investors have a fiduciary responsibility. And in the US at least, this is, this is pretty narrowly defined uh, and should not include non-pecuniary factors. So for this paper, we thought it would be useful to look at climate change uh, purely from a risk return perspective. And that is what, what we've done. So, so in this way, um, our, our approach is a little bit different. Um, as for some of the main, main findings of our, of our research, our paper addresses three key questions, I think. <clears throat> First, is climate change a material factor for investors? Second, how are markets handling this? Uh, and third, you know, what, what exactly should investors do about this? So to turn to the, to the first question, is, is climate change a material factor for investors? Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Climate change is already impacting our planet today. Uh, you know, whether it's epic wildfires in Australia and California or heat waves across Europe or extreme cold spells in Texas just, just a few weeks ago, it's clearly impacting human lives. It's disrupting economic activity today. It's clearly impacting markets. Um, I'd, I'd like to share with, with your listeners one really, I think, underappreciated point around climate science. You know, because of the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere, the, the trajectory of global warming and climate change for the next 20 years has, has been locked in already. Uh, 
So even if I had a magic wand and I waved that magic wand furiously and I could make all carbon emissions magically cease tomorrow, it would not alter the course of climate change for roughly the next two decades. Bottom line, climate change is absolutely material for investors. It's impacting our planet, impacting human lives today. It's disrupting economic activity and markets. Uh, and it will continue to do so in the future. All investors need to be mindful of it, just like, just like they would interest rates or GDP or unemployment. The second key, key, key question is, is around markets and how are markets handling this? Um, and how, how well are they pricing in climate change and all these associated risks? The short answer is not very well right now. They're pricing it in quite inconsistently and incompletely. But what's critical for investors here, Paul, is going forward, markets will price in climate change much more fully. Our research uh, shows this is much more likely to happen in stages, in fits and spurts over time, rather than all at once in a, in a climate Minsky moment. And one of the reasons we believe climate gets priced into markets sequentially over time, rather than abruptly, are the drivers of this. Our our research identified five catalysts working to drive markets to price in climate change more and more. Um, I, I, I'd like to share two of, two of my favorites. Uh, sure, please you. do, yes. First is government regulatory policy. <clears throat> you know, whether it's carbon pricing mechanisms, emission controls for automobiles, planes, you know, Europe has really been at the vanguard of carbon pricing around emissions of utilities. And these policies have really spurred pricing of climate in that sector. Now here in the US, the prior administration has chose not to take policy action. However, the Biden administration, uh, we learned just last week is really committed to moving forward on this front. Though it's unclear exactly how. But um, probably the most important catalyst, the, the one that we're watching most closely, Paul, is the data revolution that's been underway in climate analytics over the last five to 10 years. You know, uh, basically new climate analytics are more accessible to investors. They're more granular than ever before. And the key point here is a simple one. Better data leads to better investment decisions. Um, you know, the, the, the new analytics really enable investors to be smarter in their risk analysis where, where markets don't, don't do a great job. And the, and the third key, key question that our paper uh, uh, addresses is, so what should investors do about this? And, you know, first, let me, let me start off by, by reiterating that it's important to realize this is a relevant factor for all investors, all kinds of investors. Climate change is, is one of those forces that's really transforming the investment landscape. It's creating a whole new set of risks and opportunities, and investors need to, need to be able to navigate this. As for how to go about navigating, you know, the best way is by leaning into this data revolution, really leveraging this alternative data that, that, I, that I mentioned before, you know, this, this new climate analytics that, that, that we're talking about can really empower active data-driven investors. Um, the, the new analytics can really help investors navigate these hidden risks and even identify some emerging opportunities. So, Shariar, let's dig a little more deeply into this subject of materiality uh, related to the data, because 
depending on which market you're in and which mm -hmm. regulatory situation investors are dealing with, there's still quite a bit of difference in terms of what data is considered material. So for mm -hmm. example, Eugenia Jackson, PGIM's global head of <clears throat> ESG research, said has recently said that in addition to data on emissions, there is now temperature and warming potential data available on companies relative to their goals for meeting the Paris Accords two degrees centigrade objectives. Yeah. Unfortunately for fixed income investors, most of the available data is estimated rather than reported, which makes accurate pricing for sovereign emerging market and high yield debt more difficult. So yeah. how are asset managers like PGM working with issuers across these debt markets to increase the availability of reported data for investors? You know, um, let me let me speak a, a little bit more about the about the data revolution that I that I just just mentioned, Paul. First of all, it's it's not limited to debt investors. You know, new 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 climate analytics are more accessible to to equity investors, both public and private, uh, to real estate investors, to infrastructure investors as as well. You know, uh, also what I what what I mean by the data revolution is that. Is the, is the climate analytics available today are of better quality. They're more accessible for investors, as I mentioned, and they're more granular than ever before. And I don't wanna overstate this. You know, Eugenia makes some, some really salient, salient points here. The data is not perfect. There, there are certainly gaps in, in, in reporting, especially for, for private assets. There clearly is ample room for improvement uh, as far as standardization of data, uniformity of, of reporting. But the underlying trend, Paul, I think is very, very clear. And that is that climate data and analytics are much better today than they were even five, five years ago. So, so for, so for uh, data-driven investors who are willing to, to integrate, incorporate work with the data that we, that we do have, um, there are there are there are some some real gains to be to be had, specifically what what we call alternative data, which is kind of non non financial data that is increasingly becoming more and more part of the investment process. This 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 kind of data is really booming. I'm talking about satellite imagery. I'm talking about heat and water stress metrics. I'm talking about geolocation services. These are increasingly being used by debt and equity investors, increasingly uh, used by, by real estate investors too. Um, it, it may be helpful for, for me to give you an, an example of um, what, I'm, what I'm talking about. Would that, would that help, Paul? Absolutely, please do. So in the, in the, in the real estate market, for, for example, alternative data that's more granular can help investors evaluate climate risk where markets may not do such a great job. <clears throat> take a take a look at coastal real estate, for example. Now, now, now we think of Miami, Melbourne, Mumbai as being high high risk areas prone to coastal flooding, right? And uh, and typical analysis of flood risk is is at the neighborhood level, maybe at the district level, so at like the zip code level. Um, you know, my my colleagues at PGM Real Estate are able to leverage some cutting edge alternative data. They're utilizing updated flood maps. They're utilizing satellite imagery, geolocation services to get more granular views of the 
of the of the risks in in these areas in these neighborhoods at a block by block level or even at a property by property level and in being more granular they can differentiate risk where as i noted markets have a hard time doing so so they can find what what we call hidden gems properties that are at lower risk or are more resilient but are yet priced with the same high risk discount as their neighbors and this and this would be one example of how to leverage alternative data to actually discern between risk risk and opportunity and to and to help help navigate climate change okay so sherry you mentioned before that essentially the next 20 years of climate mm -hmm. impact is pretty much baked into the system already yeah. uh, and that it's beyond that that we really are needing to plan for related to long-term issues. But let's talk about the beginning of this phase of repricing in, mm -hmm. for example, real estate markets as, as a good example of that, mm -hmm. based on sea level rise and flooding and fire and that sort of stuff. Um, how much are regulatory infrastructures, both in the US and Europe and other parts of the world, prepared for this repricing process? Uh, and you mentioned that you yeah. think it's going to go be done over an extended period of time rather than in a short, more catastrophic way. So uh, could you talk about that a little bit more? Um, so I'm, so I'm, so I'm, Glad you bought you 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 sort of raised the regulatory landscape and uh, you know certainly there are there are some some stark differences between the regulatory landscape for example in the in the U.S. and and Europe um, as 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 part of our research for for this paper we we conducted a survey of uh, over 100 global institutional investors and we asked them about climate change and uh, one of one of the more striking results was the was the sort of stark difference between US and European investors' views on government regulation. It, it ranked last by, it, it was ranked last by US investors when it comes to motivations for incorporating climate risks into their portfolio, but yet it ranked number one for European investors. So uh, clearly regulatory landscape plays a, plays a role in some markets more than, more than others. Um, you know, Stepping back for a for a moment, when I think of the forces that that compel uh, action from companies or investors on on any matter, really, I, I I think of it as as both a push and a pull. And for the most part, regulatory policy, government mandates are a are a push force. That is, they they push companies and investors to to act. But it's important to to keep in mind that you know government regulation is not the only compelling force here. For example, <clears throat> the, the US government has, has taken a very hands-off policy when it, when, it, when it comes to climate change, um, certainly, certainly over the last four, four or five years. But yet a number of US companies have responded with voluntary carbon neutral pledges and voluntary greater data disclosures. These are, you know, the largest companies that we can think of, Amazon, Delta, Microsoft, Coca-Cola, Ford, Exxon, the largest US companies have made these pledges without any govern 
without any government mandates to, to, to do so. Why would they do that? What are, what are the forces that they're responding to? So our, our research identifies some of the pull factors and we've, we've identified the preferences of their customers, the preferences of their investors as compelling forces for these, these companies as, as well. Indeed, these, these collective nudges from key stakeholders like, like your clients, like your investors are the pull force that, that, that are also compelling action from companies and investors. Now, of course, to get the massive action and the, you know, on, the, on, the, on the scale that, 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 that we need to, to address climate change requires both push and pull in order to make significant progress on carbon emissions. But the, going, going back a bit uh, to, the, to the regulatory landscape and how it may be uh, evolving here in the, in the, in the US, you know, um, the Biden administration has made very, very clear their, their objectives and priorities for, for climate policy. They did this last, last week. What remains very unclear is how exactly they plan to get there. We don't know what measures they will, they will propose. We don't know what measures will actually be passed into, into law. You know, could there, could there be a carbon pricing mechanism in the, in the US the way there is in, in, in Europe? If so, which, which industries would, would be involved? These are just, just two huge uh, unanswered uh, questions. There are many, many more. But let me be clear about one, one, one point here, Paul. Investors should absolutely watch to see what plays out, but they should not wait to take action. They need to move today to address climate risks in their portfolios. Markets will price this in more fully, whether it's push or pull. Investors really need to position their, their portfolios for the hidden risks and for the emerging opportunities from, from this transition to a, to a low carbon economy. Well, good. That's, that's, that's very helpful for that additional information, Shariar. Now, we're also dealing with a, a set of risks and opportunities related to climate change that are difficult to capture and empirically analyze using our traditional approach to market-driven financial data, yeah. uh, which is historical in nature, and it's linear in terms of the modeling that we do with it. How is PGM's report for action and its plan for its institutional investors considering the, the more holistic approach of climate impact across portfolios? So to be very clear, our, our action plan in the, in the, in the paper is, is largely around leveraging alternative data in an active investment approach in order to manage risks and opportunities that are that are evolving that are emerging from 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 climate change and we've and we've and we've already touched on on a few of them like like identifying emerging opportunities such as hidden hidden gems in in real estate as 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 we spoke about um, when i step back for a for a moment um, and think about you know holistic impact of climate change across an entire portfolio you know, one thing really stands out very, very clearly to me, and that is pure passive index approaches, which have gained immensely in popularity over the last few, few years, are simply not equipped to handle climate change risk or opportunity. In fact, climate change could very well be the kryptonite for these index approaches. And let me explain what I, what I mean by this. <clears throat> 
first regarding the, the, the risk side of things, you know, there are certain aspects of, of climate risk. The, the fact that its impact is nonlinear, that it's highly, highly uneven, both across countries, even within countries, these, these characteristics make it extremely difficult for passive index approaches. These kind of irregular nonlinear risks are really the blind spot for index approaches that, that have this presumption that risks are uniform and evenly distributed across an asset class. On the, on the opportunity side, passive index approaches could also really stumble, I think. When, when considering the opportunities around a transition to a low carbon economy, there's no way for passive approaches to embrace some of the alternative data and use it to differentiate risk the way investors can do now. At, at PGM, we're active investors who do bottom-up analysis. Our, our analysts have been looking at transition and physical risks long before ES, ESG was, was, was kind of fashionable. Uh, our, our fixed income team, for example, has, has leveraged their extensive experience around these issues and come up with their own proprietary model to score every single bond from, from an ESG perspective. So that's corporates, whether it's high yield, investment grade, government debt, uh, asset-backed securities, mortgage backs, munis, um, talking about bonds in the, in the US, bonds, you know, foreign bonds, really bonds around the world. This is one example of how PGM leverages data around climate and ESG and integrates it into our investment processes across debt, equity, real estate, and other real assets. Bottom line here, Paul, for, for investors is that <clears throat> an active bottom-up approach that can integrate some of this alternative data that, that you're talking about in the investment process is the best way for investors to navigate climate. So let's talk a little bit about supply chains, especially the global supply chains that in, include smaller and developing markets around the world. Climate change has the potential to cause significant disruptions in, in global supply chains according to all of the data that I review and, and, and everyone's analysis of the global impacts, could you give our listeners a couple of examples of industries which face underappreciated climate risk as a result of supply chain disruption and what PGM is doing uh, to support investors managing these risks? Sure. So, you know, our, our, our research found that um, one of the hidden risks from climate change, as you, as you mentioned, lies in the supply chains of many, many companies. Uh, and, and the way to sort of identify this once again is to use alternative data to sort of ferret out to reveal these hidden risks. And, and the kinds of tactics I'm talking about are overlaying the geolocation of key production supplier facilities with updated flood maps, heat and water stress metrics to reveal which operations are most exposed to the physical climate risks. Um, this, in, in doing so, this allows really data savvy investors to find out which supply chains are most vulnerable. For, for example, um, we don't often think of Japanese or Swiss pharmaceutical companies uh, as being highly exposed to climate risk, Paul, but, but they really are through their sprawling, sprawling supply chains, which, which run through countries like, like India, for example. Uh, production plants that are exposed to extreme heat and water stress, um, for, for example. You know, manufacturing drugs can be a highly water intensive process and determining which 
which manufacturing plants lie in extreme drought zones, can give investors insight into which supply chains may be most vulnerable. And in, in response, investors can tilt their portfolio away from firms with the highest risks and towards those who, who manage these, these risks better. Let me, let me give you another example. Um, I'm talking about semiconductors, the, the, the chips that run our phones, our cars, our tablets, and really everything else. You know, much of their manufacturing runs through places like Southeast Asia and the Southwestern United States. <clears throat> uh, our, our paper cites research that two thirds of the plants in Asia face wind or flooding risk from, from typhoons and more than two thirds of the plants in the Southwestern United States face water stress. So overlaying the geolocation of these, of these manufacturing plants with flood maps and water stress metrics can once again reveal which supply chains are most likely to suffer production disruptions from climate. Bottom line, these are just two examples of how a data-driven active approach that utilizes new climate analytics and data can lead to better investment decisions and better investment performance. Thank you, Sharia. Now, of course, we've spent a, a good bit of time talking about climate risks, but we also know that the other side of the coin is the opportunities that emerge from a situation like this. We've got a couple of minutes left in our time today, and if you could tell us about, about the range of new green investment opportunities that are emerging to fund climate-related activities. For example, green and climate bonds as an example on the fixed income side. And where else is there opportunity for investors to participate in the transition <laughs> to a low carbon economy? So Paul, I'm, I'm so glad that you, that you, that you asked, asked about um, um, investment opportunities. You know, so so much of the of the of the discussion around climate and and investment focuses on on risk and um, uh, investors over overwhelmingly, I think, see see only half the half the half the picture here. Um, you know, climate is is really a shift in in the in the in the investment tectonic plates, and it and of course it it creates risks, but it also creates creates opportunities. And there are there are certainly a number of a number of opportunities for 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 investors here. Um, you know, when it when it comes to green and and climate bonds, you know these are these are these are you know our our research showed that these are really sort of a a, a category of of an investment class that may not be ready for 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 prime time quite quite yet. They're 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 still young young markets. They're still sort of maturing. There are there are some issues around consistency and liquidity, um, and they and they may not be ideal ideal opportunities for for investors right now. But certainly investors need to need to keep their eye on them. Need to need to need to monitor them, where there where there are some some. Perhaps better, more investable opportunities today to participate in the in the transition to a to a low carbon uh, uh, economy is is really around around infrastructure, uh, and I'm talking about infrastructure around renewable power. This is this is kind of an obvious area, but the best opportunities may not be in the most obvious places to look. For for instance, for renewable power generation. Investors need to need to look past the saturated markets of the U.S. and Europe and really turn to emerging markets. 
So I'm talking about places like Latin America, where the aging hydro infrastructure there really needs to be replaced just as demand for electricity and power is surging. India is, 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 another, is another example here. Um, it, is, it, is, it is another area that's rapidly replacing their coal-fired plants with renewable power generation. Um, so there may be more attractively priced opportunities in emerging markets for infrastructure debt and equity investors. Another, another example uh, around, around infrastructure in, in, a, in one of the less obvious areas is, is, is this sort of component of, of infrastructure that complements power generation by, by wind and solar. So what exactly do I mean by that? You know, renewable power is generated very, very often in remote locations and transmission networks need, need to be in place to bring solar and wind power to the urban areas where it's, where it's used. And so there is an immense need for efficient transmission networks with minimal leakage. Um, and this is one, one area of really immense opportunity globally. Additionally, um, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tremendous need for smart grids. Smart grids are, are able to sort of toggle back and forth between intermittent renewable power and, and other steadier energy sources. These are absolutely essential and um, you know, also, also provide another, another kind of global investment opportunity. And there's uh, one, one other realm of, of, of opportunity, if I, if I may, Paul, that's, that's, that's a little bit more speculative, a little bit around transformative technologies. So you know, private equity and venture capital can offer ways to, to invest in, in more speculative technology. Um, you know, areas like hydrogen-powered cells. These, these, these offer the promise of intense bursts of power for, for long periods of time and the potential to decarbonize the most carbon-intensive industries like, like air travel and steel making. Another example is, is you know, carbon capture and storage. It basically plucks carbon out of the air and buries it under the ground or under the sea. And when done at scale, this can actually reduce the level of carbon in the atmosphere. Sherry, our thanks for taking the time to join me today on the Sustainable Finance Podcast. There's clearly a lot more we can discuss another time regarding PGM's assessment of how investors can weather climate risks and take advantage of climate change opportunities in their portfolios. How can folks get in touch with you and PGM about these opportunities? Climate change is just the latest in a series of, of what we call megatrend reports. Uh, and my thematic research team writes about broad macro secular trends. Past, we've touched on themes like urbanization, aging populations. So to, so to read our climate paper or to review more of our research, uh, your listeners can visit our, our website, pgim.com, that's pgim.com uh, backslash megatrends. Great. Thank you much, Sherryar Antia, Vice President and Head of Thematic Research at PGIM. And thanks to our listeners. Please join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast.